0: Well, thank you so much to Tommy and to Joe and Steve and Melissa and really the rest of the team here at Grace Life. Uh, it's such a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning. And, and as a pastor, I know just how humbling it is to be able to come to somebody else's pulpit. Uh, I'm unfamiliar to you and, and, and vice versa, but there is this wonderful community that we share because of our faith in Christ. And so I thank you for, for welcoming me today uh, so warmly. Uh, If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn over with me to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts chapter 15. We're not going to be here for our primary text. Melissa has already so helpfully read that for us, but a little bit of context I think is helpful for us as we head into 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in college, uh, I majored in history, and so I, I love a good history and context and background, and I think a lot of times when we read God's Word, it's so helpful if we understand the history and context that it comes to us from. And so as we come to 1 Thessalonians, we really want to know a little bit more about the city, a little bit about the ministry, and it really all gets started here in Acts chapter 15. So if you keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians, uh, but turn over to Acts 15, we'll kind of make our way through a few chapters to kind of help set the stage uh, for our message this morning. At the end of Acts chapter 15, just allow your eye to glance down to verse 36, and you probably have a heading in your Bible that says something of the nature of Paul and Barnabas separate. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had been great colleagues together in ministry, but after their first missionary journey together, uh, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. They had a disagreement over another individual with whom Barnabas wanted to take with him on the next missionary journey, And, and, and Paul had some concerns about him, and the guy's name was John Mark, and Paul didn't really think That John Mark was as present and as dependable, and uh, they had they had some strong words together. And it's a good reminder for all of us that sometimes Christians disagree. Sometimes Christians disagree about non essential issues, and they have to work those things out. At the end of Acts chapter fifteen, we're told that Barnabas and Paul can't reach an agreement, and so Barnabas takes John Mark, and he heads off to preach the gospel to the island of Cyprus. And Paul chooses another companion for himself named Silas, and Paul and Silas go a little bit further south to a place called Derby and Lystra and they pick up a guy named Timothy with whom you'll probably be very familiar. And so this trio of Paul, Silas, and Timothy begin to evangelize in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor is what we would know today as probably Western Turkey. And while they're ministering there in Asia Minor, Paul has a vision. He has a dream from a man in Macedonia, which would have been further west. And this man in Macedonia is calling out to Paul and to his colleagues to come further west. And so if you turn over a chapter to chapter 6, just allow your eye to glance down to verse 10. It says in chapter 16, verse 10 of Acts, it says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, if you write in your Bible, just put a little bit of a star next to Acts 16, 10, because that represents for us a significant turning point in the history of Christianity. It represents the very first time that Christianity moves well westward. Uh, Really, for the majority of Paul's ministry and Jesus' earthly ministry, it had been based in what we know today as the modern Middle East. But this second missionary journey here, as Paul and his colleagues begin to go further west, signifies a significant turning point as the gospel begins to spread further west into the Roman Empire. We're told in Acts 16 that the trio's first stop on this second missionary journey lands them in a city called Philippi. And we know in Philippi there's a lot of well known Bible stories that come out of that city. Uh, we're introduced immediately in Acts 16, 11 through 15, to a woman uh, who sold clothing. She dyed clothing into the color purple and she would sell it. And her name was Lydia. And we find out that one of the very first converts uh, on Paul's second missionary journey is who? It's a woman. And as we see, the spread of Christianity move further westward, one of the things that we always notice from the spread of Christianity is that the spread of Christianity happened across every single uh, social stratosphere, that it affected slaves, it affected the middle class, it affected the upper class, and it affected both men and women, uh, that at that time women were incredibly marginalized in Greco-Roman society. But one of the very first things that we notice as Christianity moves west is that it actually raises the profile of women. And Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, oftentimes highlights that forest. And so here, the first convert that we meet in the city of Philippi is a woman named Lydia. We also meet another person in the city of Philippi. It's this servant girl who is owned or, or, or kind of enslaved to these two guys who kind of trot her around as a little bit of a fortune teller. And we're told that as Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi as they're ministering the gospel, this girl kind of follows them around and kind of agitates them a little bit. Uh, finally, Paul gets a little bit frustrated and annoyed, and he actually casts the evil spirit out of her. And the owners get really upset because that's kind of how they were making all their business. They would kind of trot this girl out to sell fortunes and whatnot. And now that this girl's evil spirit had been cast out by the Apostle Paul, they realized that their revenue stream had dried up. And so these two guys kind of go into the marketplace and uh, they make a big ruckus uh, on behalf of Paul, saying basically that Paul is a troublemaker. And as a result of that, Paul and his companion Silas get thrown into prison. They get thrown into a Philippian jail. And we have another famous story from the book of Acts here where we find out that as Paul and Silas are singing in prison that God divinely orchestrates an earthquake. And the earthquake is so strong that it basically shakes up the prison, opens up all of the doors. Uh, But in an ironic turn of events, all of the prisoners, including Paul and Silas, stay. The Philippian jailer, about to commit suicide because, again, in Roman society, if you let your prisoners escape, the cost was you would have to die. That was on your head. And the Philippian jailer comes out, and he's about to die, and Paul and Silas come up to him and say, hey, we're all here. We haven't left. We have remained and stayed And that represents a bit of a turning point, a a crucial watershed moment for the jailer. And the jailer cries out to Paul and Silas and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul memorably says in Acts 16.31, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, after Paul and Silas get out of prison, uh, things don't go too terribly well for them. There's probably still a lot of angst and and a lot of antipathy towards them, and so not only do they get asked to leave, but they kind of get asked to leave in a little bit of a shameful way. And we actually read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. So as Paul leaves Philippi with Silas in tow, they travel about 90 miles west by southwest to this town of Thessalonica. And with that, we come to to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we're introduced to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, The city of Thessalonica was the most populated city in that region, and it was known as the mother city of all of Macedonia. It sat on a natural harbor. It had over 100,000 people, which, again, in ancient Near Eastern times would have been quite sizable. And we're told that Paul and Silas and Timothy for three Sabbaths go into the synagogue and preach the gospel. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's ministry, you'll know that this is actually Paul's pattern, that consistently that when Paul would go into towns to preach, that the first thing he would always do is he'd always go to the local synagogue. He would almost always go into the synagogue and he would first try to reach his countrymen. But then, most ironically, it was his own countrymen who would reject the message of the gospel to which Paul would leave the synagogue, and he would go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened here in Thessalonica. Paul goes into the synagogue, he preaches the gospel of grace and not works to the people, uh, to the religious elite there. They want nothing to do with it, so he leaves, and we're told that Paul goes out into the marketplace, as it were, in Thessalonica. And we're told that many are converted, not only a few devout Greeks or Gentiles, but a again, Luke gives us a little bit of a hint here in Acts 17. He says also a few prominent women as well. While Luke records the trio's activity in the synagogue for just three weeks, Paul probably stayed in the city much longer than that. Most commentators believe that Paul, after being kind of shuttled out of Philippi, wanted to establish a little bit of a home base. So he actually set up camp in Thessalonica probably for at least three to six months. And from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we know at least that Paul was in the city long enough to get a job and to labor amongst the people there. Well, Unfortunately, as in Philippi and other cities, uh, the Jews became a little bit jealous. They didn't like the work that Paul was doing. And again, it kind of reminds us and shows us that even in Jesus' ministry, that it was oftentimes the religious people who didn't get the gospel. It was oftentimes the religious people who wanted nothing to do with the gospel that Paul was preaching. The local Jews get jealous and get upset about what Paul is preaching, and they form a mob, they riot, they go to a guy's house named Jason. Jason had kind of been housing Paul and Silas and his colleagues, and they basically start a huge riot to which Paul and Silas and his team get run out of town. Uh, Paul and his colleagues get run out of the city, and again, they continue to head southwest down to a nearby city called Berea. If your eye is still there in Acts 17, just allow your eye to go down to verse 13. Verse 13, Paul records, he says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, right? Talk about trouble following you. Uh, not only do the Jews in Thessalonica get upset about what Paul is doing, they hear good reports about the message and how it's being received at the city of Berea. They actually travel 60 miles. They start up a little bit of a riot down there and they run Paul and Silas and Timothy out of that city. Timothy and Silas will remain back behind in Berea, but the, the situation so bad that they actually have to put Paul on a ship, and they ship Paul southward down to the city of Athens. And if you're familiar with the narrative, actually, you know that it's in the city of Athens that Paul famously confronts their atheism, or really their, their polytheism, that they had so many gods, but really it was, it was gods that they did not know. And so Paul leaves Athens pretty discouraged because the reception that he got in the city of Athens, while unlike the situation at Philippi and at Berea and at Thessalonica, the the city of Athens was just wholly indifferent to him. They kind of heard Paul, they thought maybe he's a little bit of a quackpot, and they just said, hey, we don't want anything to do with this God. And so Paul ends up leaving the city of Athens. He doesn't stay there very long, and he sails a little bit further southward where he lands in the city of Corinth. And Paul will stay in the city of Corinth Corinth for the longest amount of time that he does with any church. He'll actually stay in the city of Corinth for about 18 months. And I say all of this, and the reason why we've gone through Acts 15, 16, and 17 is to help us to understand the context by which we actually have the Thessalonian letters. You can imagine Paul's state of mind as he lands in Corinth and he thinks back to the church plants that he had just planted in both Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, right? You can imagine that that Paul, not the well-known apostle as we know him today, is probably really discouraged, right? Can you imagine? Uh, you know, this this kind of goes against every sense of leadership development or successful leadership. That basically everywhere Paul went, he got kicked out of the city, right? He was never able to stay in one spot. There was always opposition to wherever he went. And so when Paul finally lands in Corinth, and he has a little bit of a chance to catch his breath. You can imagine how discouraged and how difficult it must have been for him. Ultimately, Paul is so concerned about the Thessalonians in particular that Silas and Timothy, who have now come down to him in Corinth, he actually sends them back. He says, Silas and Timothy, get back on the boat. I want you to go back to Thessalonica and, and find out what's going on at the church plant. Find out what's going on. I, I feel so bad that I was torn away from them. Will you bring back a report to me? And in chapter 18, verse 5 of Acts, we're told that Silas and Timothy, who have arrived in Corinth, bear word to Paul about what has transpired in nearby Thessalonica. And in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, listen to how Paul records the reception of this good report. He says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Right Paul receives this good report from the Thessalonians and it lifts his spirits it deeply encourages him So turn over with me now, keep your finger as it already has been in 1 Thessalonians, over to this first chapter, which will be our main text for today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see an extended prayer of thanksgiving that Paul is giving in response to the good word that has been brought back to him from Silas and Timothy. And as we unpack this section, let me just give you four headings that we'll work our way through fairly expeditiously. In verses 2 through 3, we'll see a full-hearted prayer. In verses 4 through 5, we'll see a Trinitarian-shaped faith. In verses 6 through 8, we'll see a fruitfully lived life. And in verses 9 through 10, we'll see a fitting summary. So a full-hearted prayer, a Trinitarian-shaped faith, a fruitfully lived life, and a fitting summary. Well, in verses 2 through 3, we see a full-hearted prayer. Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, begin this section in this extended prayer, thanking God for the Thessalonians' work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Uh, Some of you this morning might have an NIV or the New International Version of God's Word. and I like how the NIV translates verse 3. It says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, in your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these three qualities are a dear favorite of Paul. And in fact, in almost every single letter that he writes in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Paul will group these three attributes, these three characteristics together of both faith, love, and hope. He'll actually pick it up again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin called faith, hope, and love a brief definition of true Christianity. He said, listen, do you, do you want to sum up what it means to be a Christian? This, this gets you at the water's edge, faith, hope, and love. It's also a good reminder for us that faith, hope, and love aren't marks of what it means to be a super Christian, right? That there are these tiers of Christians, that they're really, really spiritual Christians, and then they're just everyday Christians. You no, know, Paul seems to allude here that, listen, every Christian should be marked by both faith, hope, and love. Let's talk about each of these constituent elements individually. We see that Paul commends the Thessalonians for their work of faith. Uh, The joining of works in faith is not uncommon in the New Testament, and Paul, never one to be misinterpreted as thinking that work produces faith, nonetheless shows us that true faith is always seen in good works, or that good works are a demonstration of true saving faith. Commentator Gordon Fee writes, he says, true faith can best be seen in the good works that it produces best be seen in the good works that it produces and apparently there were good works that were being produced in the hearts and lives of the Thessalonians to which Paul commends. Not only does he commend them then for their work of faith, but he also commends them for their labor of love. And you can allow your eye to glance at that second part of the triad. Now, the Greek word here for labor is much different than the Greek word for work. It's much more strenuous. It, it has the notion of doing something with an element of discomfort or hardship or arduous toil or sweat or fatigue. Uh, some have observed here that Paul is probably referencing the Thessalonians, some of which in the church were having to labor and provide for many in the church who had kind of stopped working. And Paul will address that a little bit later. Again, imagine in a church this size, imagine that maybe half of you decided to quit your day jobs because you thought Christ was going to return soon, so you didn't need to work anymore. The other half of you would have to work really hard to not only support yourself, but also support the people that weren't working. And Paul here, to, to many, uh, to, in many ways, is commending uh, their work ethic. Consistently, Paul will also point to his own example with the Thessalonians about he also wasn't lazy or indolent or complacent, but he also labored and worked. And one of, the, one of the pushbacks that some of the false teachers would lob against Paul was they kind of basically said, hey, Paul's a little bit of a freeloader. He kind of just goes from place to place and kind of just works and lives off of the church and then kind of Monday through Saturday isn't really doing anything. And Paul, especially here in 1 Thessalonians, pushes back against that and says, listen, I labored among you. You saw me. I actually worked a job with you. Not only does he commend them then for their work of faith, their labor of love, but thirdly and finally, he commends them for their steadfastness of hope. And in their steadfastness of hope, it's the least ambiguous of this triad, and it's the one part that actually gets the most attention throughout the book, especially in chapter four. One of the qualities that the Thessalonians demonstrated is that in the midst of their affliction and their hardships and their brokenness, they were absolutely steadfast in their hope in Christ's return. And they were steadfast in a way that in the midst of their afflictions, other people began to take notice of this. One of the reasons why Paul commends them, we'll find out a little bit later, is that people all over Macedonia and Achaia noticed that despite their hardship, despite the affliction, despite the difficulty that this young church plan is going under, they still maintain a steadfastness of hope. And Paul says, listen, everybody's talking about it. Everybody all over, everywhere I go, people are saying, hey, have you heard about the church plant in Thessalonica? Have you heard about the way that they are staying steadfast in the midst of affliction? John Stott helpfully summarizes this section. He says, faith, hope, and love are thus sure evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Faith, hope, and love are the surest evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That brings us then to our second point, a Trinitarian-shaped faith. In verses 4 through 5, and really the tail end of verse 3, we see what enabled and empowered this new way of life, right? It's not that the Thessalonians just one day get together and say, hey, we want to be people who are really faithful, hopeful, and loving, right? And they just self-conjure that up on their own. No, we actually find out here from Paul's prayer that this was all empowered by Jesus Christ, and as we often do see, we see all three members of the Trinity taking part in the process of salvation. And When we read the New Testament, oftentimes we forget that, that when we talk about our faith that all three members of the Trinity play critical and integral roles. Again, if you want to keep your finger there in First Thessalonians, turn over with me to First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter again highlights all three members of the Trinity's working in salvation. Listen to what uh, Peter says. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's the first member, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the second, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, right? We are known by God, we are sanctified by the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ. That's how Peter references it here. But in 1 Thessalonians 1, if you flip back to our text, we see here in verses 4 through 5, again, Paul puts it in a memorable way. He says, listen, we have hope in Jesus Christ, we're loved and chosen by God, and we are empowered and convicted through the work of the Holy Spirit progression in these verses is clear, is that that the labor of love, the work of faith, and the steadfastness of hope that Paul has just commended them for is all made possible because of the work, the regenerating, saving, gracious work of all three members of the Trinity. That brings us to our third heading a fruitfully lived life, a fruitfully lived life. Now, in this next section of verses six through eight, Paul's going to commend the Thessalonians for becoming imitators of him. And this won't be the first time that he commends or commands this. And in fact, while he's there in Corinth, he'll actually tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he'll say, listen, imitate me. Imitate me, therefore, as I imitate Christ. Now, some of us might think to ourselves, well, that sounds a little bit prideful right on Paul's part. I mean, who's, who's Paul? That now everybody in the church plan is supposed to, supposed to look like him. But we have to know that historically at this point in Greco-Roman times, it was widely expected that you would look like your teacher that you would turn out and look like the person who had instructed you. So people who followed Socrates, well, you wanted to look like Socrates, you wanted to talk like Socrates, you wanted to belong to the different places that he belonged to, or whether it was Plato or Aristotle. It was assumed during Greco-Roman times that you most resembled the teacher who initially taught you. There's an expectation that the follower should look like their leader. So this call from Paul doesn't come from flattery, but comes from a heart of love, right? That as he follows Christ, that he can rightly call on the Thessalonians and say, follow me as I follow Christ. And as I follow Christ and try to look like Christ, that if you follow me, that you yourselves will be resembling who? that you'll be resembling Christ, right? In many ways, just like if Pastor Tommy said to all of you this morning, imitate me therefore as I imitate Christ. That's not flattering, that's not boasting, but it's him acknowledging, listen, as I follow Christ and seek to live that life out humbly and honestly before the Lord, I rightly wanna be able to call all of you to follow me, to follow my way of life, to live like I live because of how I follow Christ. In addition to this reminder, we're told, and we know as we read through the book of Thessalonians, that Paul will call the church at Thessalonica his brothers over 22 different times. It's an amazing, an amazing phrase there that Paul doesn't think of himself as being up here and the Thessalonians are down here, but that he's actually their brothers. Again, as we know from from families, right, that, that brothers hopefully look like brothers, that you belong to the same family. It reminds us that brothers and sisters in Christ should rightly resemble each other because of our shared faith in Christ. Commentator Leon Morris writes this. He says, It remains true that no preacher can expect a hearing for his gospel unless it is bearing fruit in his own life. Let me read that again. It remains true that no preacher can expect a hearing from his gospel unless it is bearing fruit in his own life. And friends, I can confidently say that that you have that in your pastor this morning. You have a pastor who deeply, deeply loves Christ and whose life has been transformed by Him so that Pastor Tommy can rightfully come to you on any given Sunday and humbly but wisely and compassionately call you to say, imitate my life because of the fruitfulness of my life because of what God has done in me that together as I follow Christ, together all of us can follow Christ not only do the Thessalonians live a fruitful life imitating Paul, but here's the, here's the real crux of this situation, right? It's easy to live a life when everything is going well. It's more difficult when it's the midst of affliction. Apparently, we don't know exactly why, but the Thessalonians are suffering. They are really struggling. And throughout Paul's writings, right, we see this juxtaposition of both suffering and joy together. Again, I don't think that I mentioned it, but it would we would do well to remind ourselves that 1 Thessalonians is the very first book that Paul wrote that we actually have for us. This represents the earliest letter that we have for him. This is before Paul made it big, as it were, right? This is this is this is this is Paul kind of just the itinerant preacher. But we know that not only from First Thessalonians, but almost every single book that he will write after this, that there is a juxtaposition of both affliction and joy. Let me just read some of the passages for you, and you can jot them down in your notes. In Romans 5 3, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, In all of our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. I mean that doesn't that sound a bit a bit crazy and counterintuitive to our own culture today? In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. But yet Paul almost always joins these two things together. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I mean, are we, are we rejoicing this morning that there's no air? Are we rejoicing that we're in a position that, that entails a bit of hardship and difficulty? And the human side of me wants to say no. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually rejoice in sufferings and difficulty. Paul says this in Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, right? As Paul writes to the Philippians, to this church that he plants on the second missionary journey, he is literally tied to a prison guard or chained to a prison guard in a jail. And he says, listen, I'm really happy to die. I'm actually really happy to be here. Why? Because of my faith in Christ. And friends, I believe that it is the Thessalonians' joy in the midst of suffering, which was so radical, and why what was happening in the church was spreading all over Macedonia and Achaia. Their faith in the midst of affliction provided a missional witness so strong that Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 1. We need not say anything. Now, that's just a fancy way for a preacher to say, I don't need to say anything, and then he'll go on and speak for another 20 minutes, and that's exactly what Paul does. He says, listen, we don't need to say anything, and then he'll write four more chapters after that. Paul here says, listen, we don't need to say anything about just about how wonderful you were doing in the midst of affliction, about how you were standing firm. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, we boast of you in the churches of God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul will kind of, not in, a, not in a shaming way to the church at Corinth, he'll say, listen, the generosity of all the churches of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica would have been one, he commends them for that. He says, listen, the churches in Macedonia don't really have a lot to give, and yet they have, they have given of what they do have to help move the gospel forward. Can you imagine how that must have felt for the Thessalonians to get this letter from Paul? Can you imagine if, again, if somebody came back to you this morning here at Grace Life Deltona and said, hey, Pastor Tommy wants to read you a letter about you, about how he feels about you, about how he is so proud of you, about how you are remaining steadfast under affliction, right? You can can imagine how that must have made the people in that congregation feel. That's exactly what Paul, being a good shepherd, wants to communicate. Listen, he says, we have nothing to say because you are doing so well in the midst of affliction. That takes us to our final point, then a fitting summary. Our final two verses close out this moving prayer from Paul, and it's a memorable summary. Now, we need to remember that religion was an incredibly important part of Greco-Roman culture. They had gods for everything. Uh, They were strong in mythology. They had temples for gods of all kinds. And so religion played a key role. Every single person was religious. And so, the step related to us here in that the Thessalonians leave that way of life behind is not to be underestimated, right? It's not as if Paul is living in a culture like ours where there is a significant portion of people who are not religious at all, who are non-church, who don't go to church, who don't believe in God. Everybody in Thessalonica was religious. Everybody was going to the temples. Everybody had gods. And so when Paul says, listen, you have turned from idols to serve the true and the living God, we realize that is not a step to be underestimated, that the church in Thessalonica faced probably a lot of persecution from turning from their old way of life and turning to Christ. Yet in light of the gospel, it doesn't compare to what is gained. I love the way that Paul describes true saving faith. And again, if you take verses three through four, Paul describes the Thessalonians' faith maybe from a propositional standpoint. He says, I've seen your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. That's kind of just a nice, tight, principled way to describe their faith. Here he actually narrates a story, right? He says, I am so thankful that you have turned from idols to serve the true and the living God. As a result of their conversion and turning to God, Paul says now that they are both serving and waiting, both active parts. Again, part of that labor of love and the work of faith. What's so striking here, friends, is the clear before and after dynamic of their saving faith. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I scroll through Facebook or Instagram uh, and people are trying to sell everything from makeups to weight loss things, they'll always post what? Before and after photos. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I actually think the before photo looks better than the after photo. And I I think to myself, that's probably not a good sales technique. I, I don't know if it's the photo editing or whatever they're engaged in, but I actually like the before photo better than the after photo. Paul here says, listen, your after photo should look incredibly different than your before photo because of Christ. And friends, this morning here at Grace Life, I want to challenge you with that question. What do your before and after photos look like? Does your before photo actually look better than your after photo? If so, something has gone terribly wrong. Your after photo, because of Christ, should look markedly different, that we should be able to take a snapshot of your life and, like the Apostle Paul, should be able to rightfully come to it and say, listen, your after photo looks different. You have served, you have served idols over here which were not alive, which were dead, who could do nothing for you, and you have actually turned to the one true living God who is alive, who has welcomed you into his family. as we close out this chapter with application we we want to ask ourselves a question we want to ask ourselves a question like this of what kind of person brings about this kind of fruitfulness in ministry keeping in mind that god uses his people to be his ambassadors his jars of clay and his instruments well he uses people like paul again this is not paul when he's made it big this is paul in the earliest parts of his ministry God uses people like Paul who will faithfully invest his life in his ministry in the church. And in First Thessalonians, there are three metaphors that Paul uses to describe himself that we just want to make some brief comments on then to make application. The three metaphors are this, that Paul describes himself like a brother, he describes himself like a mother, and he describes himself like a father. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, again, if you still have your Bible open there, Paul begins that new section, and he addresses the Thessalonians as brothers. And again, 22 times in five chapters, Paul calls the people in this church plant brothers. The pathos and the ethos with which he is written in the first chapter then makes total sense to us. Paul doesn't hold these people at arm's length. He doesn't think that he's better than them. He doesn't think that he's achieved a super form of Christianity and now all of you don't really know very much and so he's gonna kind of help you along. No, he immediately equalizes himself. And he says, no, I'm like a brother to you. I'm like an older brother. I'm a, I'm, I'm a person that, that you can joke around with and kid that you can work with, that you can dine with, that you can live life with. That's how I view you. That's how I see you. Paul also describes himself as a mother. The image deepens in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven with amazing intimacy. Paul compares his love and care of the Thessalonians to that of a nursing mother. Now And again, in a, in a very masculine-type society, that, that wouldn't have really been that great of a comparison right? But Paul compares himself to that, to a nursing mother. And we know that throughout the Old Testament that God himself is described as a nursing mother. Deuteronomy 32.18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 66.13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you comfort you. Isaiah forty nine fifteen through 16, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. Right? Paul, like God the Father, who views himself as a caring nursing mother to his children, Paul rightly sees his role as that as well. He rightly sees his role of nurturing and helping along this new infant church. Not only does he see himself as a brother and a mother, but also finally a father not only was Paul like a brother and a mother to the Thessalonians, he was a faithful and hard-working father towards him. Now, the father language Paul picks up and uses throughout his letters. He'll use it in 1 Corinthians 4, in Philemon 10, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He, he had that view of himself of, of a father who was hardworking amongst his children. As a father, we're told in verses 10 through 11 that Paul exhorted and encouraged and charged the church at Thessalonica to walk in a manner worthy of God. I love how the JB Phillips translates this verse. He says in verses 10 through 11, he says our only object was to help you to live lives worthy of the God who has called you to share in the splendor of his kingdom. Our only job as a dad was to help you become Christians, to help you live like Christ. Commentator Gordon Fee says this, He says, what Paul recognizes clearly and quite in contrast to many of the religious charlatans of his day is that the connection between the content of the gospel and the conduct of those who preach and teach it have to be held closely together for the former to have any integrity at all. Let me say that again because it's so key. What Paul recognizes clearly and quite in contrast to many of the religious charlatans of his day, and listen, there are a lot of religious charlatans in our day, and here's the connection that he's showing, that the content of the gospel and the conduct of those who preach it have to be held closely together. And friends, this morning, you have that in your pastor. In your pastor, in Pastor Tommy, You have someone whose preaching content matches the conduct of his life. And the reason why you can have trust in the content of his message is because of the conduct and fruitfulness of his life. I came to this passage quite purposefully with the hope that, as he's already mentioned, that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And you have a pastor and you have a shepherd who I am confident and believe is much like the Apostle Paul in his love and care for you, right? You can immediately begin to see the similarities, right? Paul is talking to a church plant. Pastor Tommy faithfully loves and leads you. Tommy didn't ask me to say anything this morning, and I hope he doesn't mind. And if he does, he can fire me and I won't come back, uh, but we would all be remiss this morning if we didn't rightly remember both Tommy and Sarah and his lovely family, not only today and not only this entire month, but really for the rest of time, right? That there's something that's so dear about the Thessalonians that, that Paul says, you were torn away from me like an orphan from his mother. I wanted to come back to you, right? That, that type of love, right? Doesn't just come overnight, Tommy embodies and lives out these qualities that Paul shares with the Thessalonians. And I've seen and I've heard of what God is doing here at Grace Life through Tommy and the rest of his team. I know that nothing would encourage Pastor Tommy this morning and his wife Sarah more than knowing that all of you are walking in the truth and that you are becoming like Christ The Apostle John puts it like this in 3 John 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth, right? That there would be nothing that that you could give or offer this morning that would probably be more precious to him than if you sent him a note, much like the report that Silas and Timothy bring back to Paul in Corinth that said, listen, here's how I'm growing to become more like Christ. Here's how I'm treasuring Christ because of what you've taught me. Would you do that this morning? Would you consider prayerfully reaching out to him and to his wife this morning to give him a report that would truly, not by way of flattery, but by way of encouragement, rightly acknowledge the pastoral and shepherding work that he labors for? That, that may be part of what the Thessalonians are being commended for triggers something deep down inside of you that, that you reach out to him this morning or tomorrow or you offer him a gift or a card or a text message or a phone call that says, listen, because of your ministry here at Grace Life, I know and treasure Christ more. I'm having joy in the midst of hardship. I'm seeing my sin and I'm broken over it by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Friends, as a fellow pastor, can I tell you that nothing would mean more to me than if my members did something like that for me. And this morning as we close our time, I would want you to rightfully consider that. In light of not only what Paul hears from the Thessalonians, but also in light of how you might also participate in that story as well, how you might come alongside Pastor Tommy and his family and the rest of your leadership here and rightfully bring back a good report to him that might encourage and cheer his soul. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you are a God who knew us before the foundation of the world, who loved us in Jesus Christ, and who gives us the Holy Spirit to comfort and to encourage and to empower us. Father, we pray that our lives might be marked by both faith, hope, and love, that indeed these are the truest expressions of the gospel both received and applied in our life. Father, we also rightly wanna remember not only the church at Thessalonica, but the pastor who planted that church We think about Paul, and when we think about Paul, we can't help but think of Pastor Tommy and his family as well. Father, that the mutual encouragement that Paul offers not only to the Thessalonians, but also the encouragement that the Thessalonians offer to Paul is this wonderful, wonderful juxtaposition of of the command to encourage one another. And so, Father, I pray that you would quicken the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning at Grace Life Deltona to reach out, to to make known the witness of Christ and what Christ is doing in their lives. And that as that report is shared, that it would truly bring life to his soul and to his spirit this morning. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.